Anyways, if you have your Bibles, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And we're going to wrap up the end of John chapter 12 today. John chapter 12 to me is a very fascinating chapter of Scripture. It begins with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus and this dinner they've put together for Jesus. And um, in the middle of this dinner, Mary just breaks out into this extreme worship where she anoints the feet of Jesus. And, you know, today, um, being so far removed from this, we miss out sometimes on the um, impact and, and how special this worship was. Because, you know, one, this idea of anointing isn't something that we typically do. I mean, some denominations and faith still anoint. Um, it may be something that we look into doing more often here. But it's one of those things that we don't really typically do a whole lot of. And, um, and when we do even anoint today, the, the, the cost of the ointment, um, the oil, is typically very, very inexpensive. But in this day when Mary anoints the feet of Jesus, when she breaks open this alabaster jar, this is her dowry. This is what she had to give to her future husband. This is expensive. This, the Bible tells us when Judas gets upset that she opens up this alabaster jar of ointment because he does the quick calculation because he's the keeper of the purse. He, he handles the money. He does the calculation, and he estimates the worth at 300 denarii or basically one year's worth of salary. And so this is an expensive ointment, and she breaks it and just uses all of it right then and there in this extreme sense of worship for God. And so we talked that day about what does worship for us look like? I mean, is our worship costly? Um, and by costly, I mean, I'm, part of it is financial. Are we willing to invest some of our earthly possessions, finances, into our worship for God? That's why we, at the very end of the service, um, we, we call our, our offering time a, a call to worship, a, a time of worship through our giving. Um, but that's not the only way we worship. Like, that's not the only way. When we say about cost, our minds typically go straight to dollar signs. But, but it's more than just a dollar investment. I mean, it, it, our worship sometimes costs us relationships. In that same scene, when, when, when Mary does this, she doesn't care who's watching and what they're thinking. And right off the bat, I mean, Judas throws this out. We should have sold this and given it to the poor. And John himself says that Judas wasn't concerned with the poor. He was just planning on stealing the money. But in essence, but in theory, it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like that should be like a waste. I mean, that's a waste of just an ointment. You spread it, it's there, boom, it's gone. We could have taken that money and done big things. And unfortunately, when we read this story and we look at the other gospels involved in this story, the disciples kind of side with Judas. And so when we talk about worship, it can be costly. I mean, it can, be cost, it can cost relationships sometimes. Those of us who are public with our, our faith, probably can think back to when um, our faith cost us some relationships. Maybe people thought we were weird because we believe in Jesus. Uh, one of the things that did my heart well today when we were singing, as I, I typically stand in the back, is um, seeing people begin to engage in worship. And that engagement looks different for everybody. So, so please, this isn't a plea for us to start doing the glowworm across the front floor here. Um, but, but worship ought to be expressive. And, um, and I hope that we have the freedom where we feel that we can raise our hands and worship and not be judged and people look at us funny. 
um, I grew up in a very um, traditional church, and, and um, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I, loved, I, I look back with great fondness in the church I grew up in. My parents still, when they're not here and they're back in Michigan, they still go there. Um, I love the, my, my, my home church. But, I mean, if, if anybody raised a hand in church, they'd probably stop because they thought they had a question. <laughs> right? I mean, because that just doesn't happen. And, um, and I feel bad for that. I mean, I feel bad that people don't have the ability to just worship God. Because uh, Josh read a perfect passage. When we get to heaven, like, if you don't like shouting, <laughs> if you don't like extreme worship, then you're going to think heaven's miserable. <laughs> Because we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to be screaming, we're going to be jumping up and down, and our hands will be raised. Even those from a very traditional background, your hands will be raised. And so I, when I say this, I don't, I, don't, I don't expect in our closing invitation every hand to be up like this. That's not what I'm saying. But what we want, what my desire, what Josh's desire for all of us is that you find a way to engage personally in worship. If that includes hands, great. If it doesn't, if, you, if, you, if you're forcing yourself to raise a hand, then don't force yourself. We just want you to be able to engage in worship as Mary engaged in a very public, costly manner. After that story there, it transitions into the triumphal entry. And we tackled that portion leading up to Easter. And Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. Um, and this time he's on the donkey and people are it's a big parade. It's a ticker tape parade, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Jesus is entering Jerusalem now as king. He's declaring himself as king. And so we have that idea of the triumphal entry. And then last week, there's a section out of this where, where Jesus is um, sought after by some Greeks. And these Greeks come and they find Philip and ask Philip to see Jesus. They want to do this interview with Jesus. Philip doesn't know what to do, so he goes and finds Andrew, because Andrew's always bringing people to Jesus. So he finds Andrew. Andrew takes Andrew and Philip both go find Jesus and explain the situation that these Greeks that are, are struggling, okay? They, they have been kind of sort of following Jesus, following the teachings. They're like, so close to becoming believers, but they're not quite there yet. There's this kind of wall, this block that they're having a hard time getting over. And so they just want to talk with Jesus and figure this out. And, and so we're not sure actually if Jesus has the conversation with these Greeks or if Jesus just gives the information to Philip and Andrew to go and tell the Greeks. But anyways, in this discourse that he has, he uses this example of a seed. If you remember last week I had a pack of seeds and we had a little plant here. And we talk about how the seed in and of itself is, is useless. Like by itself, the seed has very little value. It's isolated. It's weak. Right? It does nothing. Until you take that one seed and you dig a little hole and you bury it. Once it's buried, that's when the seed truly dies. But then it begins to germinate and begins to grow. We talked about how that's the way it is with our lives. Like are we willing to give that seed our life? To God and allow him to plant the seed. Um, so often, if you're like me, publicly we'll say, yes, I want to give this to Jesus. I want to give this to Jesus. But then when we get back home, we start thinking about that. We begin to go in this little de defensive mechanism, right? Where we begin to try and protect some of our assets, some of our um, finances, uh, maybe our, our relationships or whatever it is, our vocation, whatever it is, we begin to kind of hold on to because we don't really, really, really want to let go because if we really, really let go, then it's out of our control. 
And Jesus says, listen, if you really want something beautiful, if you really want to see something amazing, I can take that little seed, that little, little seed, and I can plant it, and we can grow this beautiful flower. Um, And to me, that's challenging. Because there's that inner side of Chad that always wants to control the situation, always wants to be able to have my my input in what's going to happen. And so I battle God constantly with this idea of truly giving him the seed and letting him plant the seed. And then today we draw up to the very end of this chapter. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at John chapter 12. We're going to look through verses 37 through 50. I'm going to read these verses and we'll pray and we're going to try and dissect it a bit. Verse 37, John chapter 12 says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The Lord who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Verse 44 says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken out of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life that I say. Therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you be with us this morning now these next few minutes as we look at your word. We've been on this journey through the gospel of John now for seven or so months. And we've seen a lot of different things happen. We've seen a lot of different miracles. We've seen different relationships that have been established. We've seen and listened and heard some of your own sermons. And this time frame, this timeline that we begin to look at begins to intensify. Over the next few weeks, we look at Scripture that's taken place in your last days here on earth. So as those moments are occurring in your life, you're stopping and you're reflecting and you're being much more adamant. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage today, we consider the ones that we've studied the last few weeks and then we look towards the ones in the future, that you 
allow us to digest some of what you said and begin to implement it into our own lives. And this not be a, a few moments where we look at an academic pursuit, but we look at a way for us to establish a deeper, stronger, more personal relationship with the Savior who loved us and died for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So when we look at this particular passage here in John, the first few verses there, um, 37 through uh, 43, we kind of get an editorial perspective of John. He's kind of tying up some loose ends. In that final section, 44 through verse 50, Jesus himself begins to sum up his three years of ministry. He, he wraps up in those few sentences basically everything he taught and preached. This first part of, um, and that we read today, to me, is a little troubling. Sometimes it's a little hard to understand. When we read this passage here, there's this idea. Um, the first part, these are people who have witnessed Jesus. Like they've been there, they've seen it with their own eyes. How many of you, as you have begun to share your faith um, with people, and, and you kind of come in contact with that person that just really feels stubborn, like they just don't get it, and, and in your mind you begin to think, like, if they could only see a miracle, if they could just get a glimpse of that, it would change. I mean, it would change everything. Like, if they could actually see the action or the hand of Christ working, then they couldn't refute it, and they'd accept, and I just need that miracle. Some of us in our own walk, even as, as Christians, you know, we, we want that, that hand of affirmation of God, like where we feel like him pushing us the way we want to go or need to go, right, rather than kind of blindly walking. To me, it's amazing to think that these people around Christ, not all of them, but, but the crowds that have been gathering around Christ, they've seen the miracles, they've heard the messages But yet we see there in verse 37, though, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I mean, that blows my mind. I mean, wouldn't you think like they, they see Jesus heal like a dead man, like, like a guy that was dead, some dude that was dead in the ground for four days, and they see Jesus say a few words and some guy come walking out. Like that'd be enough for me to say, amen, praise Jesus, hallelujah, I'm following. Right? I mean, most of us, we think, yeah, if, if we saw that, boom, we'd be there. But yet we have hundreds, if not thousands of people who witnessed it, who never believe. And John goes in and begins to talk about this idea of hardened hearts. He quotes from Isaiah two different times. That first passage is from Isaiah 53, and the second time in verse uh, 40, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. It's interesting, that quote come, coming from Isaiah chapter 6, that's when Isaiah is being commissioned into his ministry. Now, um, most of the time, like, when you begin your ministry, like, it's, everything's great. Like, the world is yours to conquer. Like, we're kind of at that with Redemption Hill. Like, when I begin to think and pray and, and envision what God can do with us, like, boom, I'm thinking big. Like, God's going to use us. We're going to do some amazing things. And we've already seen amazing things occur. Right? I mean, so, so usually at the very beginning of a ministry, like, it starts off on a high note, right? Well, Isaiah 
is being commissioned by God. And basically God tells him in Isaiah chapter 6, hey, you're going to fail. Like, I want you to go and tell, but no one's going to believe you. No one's going to trust. I mean, how would you like that to be like your go and do, but realize that when you go and do, no one's going to believe you. It's going to be an utter failure. I mean, that's awful, isn't it? Right? I mean, that'd be awful. But Isaiah, and that's the, he, uh, John goes back to Isaiah here, and he's like, this idea of hardening hearts. And so I began, I began to, to try and digest some of this this past week, like God hardening hearts. Because that doesn't sound right, does it? doesn't sound as if, like, why would God harden someone's heart? That doesn't sound like the God we talk about, sing about, does it? doesn't sound like, like, that doesn't sound just if, if we all have to stand before Christ and Christ hardens someone's heart so they cannot believe they're going to have to stand before him. That doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? doesn't sound like the Jesus who was about to go to a cross pretty soon, is it? So this week I've been trying to digest, what, is, what does that mean then? What does that hardened heart really mean? I think the best example in Scripture that we see here, and we can really even call this the tale of two hearts, is Moses and Pharaoh. I think it's kind of interesting this morning, and it wasn't planned, but the kids back there are learning about baby Moses. Right When Moses was born and had to be hidden and put in a little basket and flown down the river. Moses, for lack of better terms, is adopted into this royal family. And so he has the same upbringing as his brothers, and one of his brothers one day will become Pharaoh, right? These guys have the same upbringing, right? I mean, they go to the same school. They're underneath the same hand of the pagan priest of the day. Like they, they, did not, they were not brought up in a Christian family. They didn't sing praise and worship music on the way to school. Right? I mean, they didn't read Bible stories when they were little kids. Like they, they, they were brought up in a very pagan society. And one day, God intervenes. Right. The light kind of comes up with Moses. We know the story. Moses ultimately kills one of the Egyptians, and then he runs and hides and leaves. Right. Although, I mean, I, Moses murdered somebody. It was wrong action. But despite that, God over the next 40 years works and transforms the heart of Moses. I mean, he's, he's on the other side of nowhere. He becomes this itinerant shepherd, ultimately working for his father-in-law. I mean, he's out in, the, out in the field watching. Remember, we talked about sheep and how smart sheep are, right? They're not very smart. So you got this guy for 40 years out in the wilderness, out there taking care of sheep. And the whole time, God is working and preparing and transforming the character of Moses. And while all that's going on, we have Pharaoh who never goes through that. He never goes through the um, embarrassment or the humiliation of the whole murder thing. I mean, he never goes and works in some far-off field. He never knows any rags. He, he lives the pampered life. And then one day, God brings their paths back together. 
And Moses comes before his stepbrother, Pharaoh. And he says, listen, man, let my people go. Let, let the Israelites go. And Pharaoh says, no. And we have this back and forth interaction between Moses and Pharaoh, right? And then we bring these plagues in. And each one gets a little bit more difficult and harder. The Bible finally tells us that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The reality is this. God allowed Pharaoh to be set in his own decisions. God never forced Pharaoh to say no to any of those requests of Moses. God continually was giving Pharaoh opportunity to change, to accept. But Pharaoh kept saying, no, no, no. As I've gotten a little bit older, I've realized that as, I, as, I get, as I'm getting older, I become more set in my ways. And I look at my children who are much more free. And to me, that's a, a great picture because as we get more set in our ways, we become much more limited, don't we? And God will pursue us, will pursue us and give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. But if we keep saying no, 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 our heart gets harder and harder and harder. For some, we um, have grown up in church. Our church has been a part of our lives for a long time. And you can think back when, when maybe you were not a believer, when God began to pull and tug at your heart. And you sat in that service. And for some, maybe that first service was a no. Not God, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And you could feel God pulling and pulling. And the next week, no. The third week, no. And the reality, what ends up happening is the more you say no, the easier it gets to say no. And our hearts ultimately get harder. In Matthew chapter 12, we, we find there's really the only one impardonable sin. There's only one thing that God can't forgive, and that's rejecting him. See, I have a hard time. One of the things that's become very popular today is this, what is often called like a Reformed theology. It's kind of a throwback from Calvinism. And, and one of the things that I struggle with is that if you carry out, if you get to the root of Calvinism, this idea of election, predestination, if you go to the root of it, if you carry it all the way out, what you're saying is that God ultimately created and defined sin. And God preordained someone to sin and someone not to sin. God preordained those who will accept him and who will not accept him. God preordained people who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. I don't believe that. I believe God gives us the opportunity, continually gives us the opportunity. But if we keep saying no, if we keep saying no, if we keep pushing him away in a way, in a way, at some point, our hearts get hard. Our hearts get hard. Those were decisions that we made, not God. And so when we look at this idea of hardened hearts, we need to understand that God, and we can read in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18, when Paul references Moses and Pharaoh, 
And we see a great picture here. We, we see the grace of God because God tried to intervene with both lives. One accepted, one rejected. But then we also see the judgment side of God. God didn't want to do that. Jesus didn't want to. As in a moment, we're going to get to this. He didn't come to judge the world. He came to save the world. But our decisions, ultimately, we end up judging ourselves. And so we have this idea of this hardened heart. We see in this verse, a couple of verses. And then, man, one of the most tragic verses, I believe, in almost all of Scripture comes in verse 42. And if I were you, I would underline this in your Bible if you have them already. Verses 42 and 43. It says this, that, um, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They were too afraid to show that they believed in this God. They were too afraid to accept Jesus for who he was and and what he said he was because of the fear of what other people might think. Listen, um, that's going to be something, if we're all honest, we will all struggle with. Sinner or saint, whether we believe in God or not, it's hard for us to not be concerned at all with what people think. Again, in Revelation, there's this passage where it begins to talk about those who do not believe. And one of the, the first thing that they said, that's said in Revelation, is the coward. The one who's afraid. The one who's too afraid of what the, the rest of the crowd's going to think. The one that when we're in a church service and it comes time to the invitation and can feel the Holy Spirit prodding them and knows that they need to make this decision. And they know they need to accept Christ, but they're too scared someone's going to see them raise their hand. At the end of the day, we would be in a much better place if we chose to fear God rather than fear man. Because the fear of man, for some of us, will lead us on a path straight to hell. And God's intervening. God's offering opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He's going to put people in your life. One of the things I hope and pray for Redemption Hill Church is that we always, always, always preach the cross. We preach Jesus Christ every single week. I pray every message that comes from my lips or whoever stands behind this pulpit, at the end of the day, drives people closer to Christ. That's what we, that's what we try and do. I mean, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Like every week, I want um, those who believe in Christ, I want their relationship to be stronger. I want those who do not believe in Christ to, to feel um, drawn closer to Christ, to ultimately, hopefully, make a decision to follow Christ. We're going to talk about Jesus every single week. 
But my, my prayer for us, though, is that we're not going to be worried about what others think. When God works in our hearts, when God calls us to do something, I had a chance to sit down this week with a couple, and it was, it was great. I mean, one of the blessings being a pastor is being able to talk with our family and hearing how God's working in lives. And, and, and this family told me about how they felt God prodding and leading them into to ministry, full-time ministry. They didn't know what it looked like yet. But I'm like, how amazing is that? When you feel God, and then this story goes back a few years and this journey in, in their family and, and getting to this spot and then finally getting to the point where they're willing to just kind of step out there and say, okay, God, like that's awesome. It's not easy. But God never promised us an easy life. We don't know the answers to it. We don't know what it looks like. That's part of faith. But my prayer for us is that we are not concerned with what other people think. We're just so focused. Like Bonnie sang in that last song, we're just desperate for him. We're just desperate for him. And we're going to walk where he walks. We're going to go where he goes. And where he leads, we're going to follow. Not worried about those around us and what other people think. And then from here, we dive off from where John has his editorial notes and we get into what Jesus has to say. And here, this last few verses is Jesus' last public message. This is last, Jesus' last public discourse. From here, he's going to retreat into the privacy um, and, and surround himself with his closest friends. And so Jesus um, is going to sum up everything he's taught, everything he's preached for the last three years. He will sum up in these few verses. Verse 44 says, And Jesus cried out and said, and I, I love that Jesus cried out and said, I mean, can you guys, again, maybe close your eyes and, and just think. Jesus knows the end is, is, is near. Like he's about to be arrested. All that stuff is about to go down. And so in his heart, he knows it is almost here. This, this is, he's, he knows he's going to retreat back. So this is his last time speaking before this mass of people. And so he, with all intensity, with all passion, he cries out. And these are the words he cries out. Whosoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. So Jesus is saying, listen, this is more than just me. Like me and my father, we're one. Like you believe in me, you believe also in him. Verse 46 says, I've come not into the world as light, or I've, I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. 
You know what's amazing about our faith? I don't know if you guys have ever had a job before where um, maybe your boss isn't very clear with the expectations, right? And all of a sudden you're working and you really have no idea what's, what you're supposed to be doing, but you're doing the best you can. And all of a sudden something doesn't get done properly or correct and you get called in the office and you get scolded. Anyone ever been there before? Right, like we don't, feel, that's not a good conversation, is it? Like, because he was never clear with what I was supposed to be doing. I mean, I've been trying to navigate this thing the best I can. I've been watching, observing, reading, trying to do what I'm supposed to be doing, but, but, but there's no clear direction going on here. That's not the case when it comes to our faith, though. That's not the case when it comes to God. That's not the case when it comes to Jesus. You guys, realize that he's giving it all to us right here. Like, this Bible that we have in our hands. The book with pages that most of us have this morning. Some of us have it on our phones or tablets. It's God's word, guys. Like this was crafted and written for us. It's here for us to learn to read. God used man through inspiration. This is 100, my belief, 150% God. All God, wholly inspired. There is nothing but truth in this book. It's all here for us. There's no questions. If something fuzzy, the answer's here. We have the opportunity to learn straight from God. We have the opportunity to, to read from a perspective of people who were there when he was there. It's amazing to think that God thought so much of us, that loved us so much, that he left nothing suspect. But he wrote it all down for us. It's there. And so if we choose to reject that, Jesus is saying, listen, I came to save the world. I came to save the world. That was my mission. My father sent me from heaven here to go to a cross to save you. That's what my job is. But I'm not going to force you. That's a choice you get to make. And if you choose to reject it, the rejection falls on your shoulders, not mine. The consequences are yours, not mine. Because I've given you my word. I've given you what you need. I've placed you in a place that teaches God's word. I've brought people in your life who exemplify God's word. I'm trying. I'm pursuing. But if you say no, and you keep saying no, that's on you not me. To me, I find it fascinating that the beginning, or towards the beginning of his ministry, in very familiar fashion verses, John 3.16, I quote it often, it's my favorite verse. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
a verse after that, verse 17, which we so often forget or neglect to quote. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus, early in his ministry, talking with Nicodemus, saying, listen, I didn't come to judge. I came to save. I'm here, I'm here to bring light to the darkness. Come with me. Please come with me. Pursuing, 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 loving, loving, and loving. And Jesus is saying, I'm not the judge. But today, I would dare say most of us, if we get in a conversation with people who do not believe in Christ, it comes back to this idea of judgment, doesn't it? Well, you believe in that, but I mean, you're so short-sighted. You're against this, this, and this, and this. You hate these people, this group, this philosophy, this thought. Unfortunately, that's not the truth, is it? Jesus came to save the world, all of us. And he continues to pursue it and continues to pursue it. But he leaves the choice up to us whether we're going to accept it or reject it. Verse 49 says, uh, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus, in great humility, as he's ending his cry and his plea to the people around him, says, listen, this is not just me speaking. The things that I've done, the things that I say, it comes directly from my Father. It comes directly from God. Everything I do is me being faithful to Him. Jesus, upon concluding this statement, retreats. The next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll look at those conversations that he has with his closest friends, mainly the disciples. About two weeks, we'll get into John chapter 14. John 14, I believe, is one of the most powerful chapters in all the Bible. I would encourage you right now to begin to pray. I would appreciate your prayers for, for me as I um, begin to prepare and study for those chapters, that God places the right passions, the right thoughts on my heart, my soul, and my mind. I would encourage you to begin to think of people that you can invite to church. Because very soon we're going to talk once again about Jesus making the declaration, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not sure where we all sit today. 
I'm not sure where you sit individually as believer or unbeliever. One of the things I am very aware of is that going to church doesn't cause someone to be a Christian. Reading your Bible doesn't cause you to be a Christian. Listening to what mom and dad say don't cause you to be a Christian. It's a relationship, a personal relationship that you have to engage with our Savior. There's no rules. There's no checklist. It's an individual decision that we all must make. And I believe whenever we get in groups, there are those who are battling that decision of whether to accept it or to continue to reject it. There are some that, when they were young, made a decision, maybe in church, that they didn't fully understand. Or maybe they did it because the person next to them made a choice. And they're basing their walk today on a hand they raised 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe 60 years ago. Raising a hand doesn't save anybody. relationship and God will continue to pursue but I can't tell you how long it takes for a heart to get hard and I can't tell you how many times we get to reject him before it's done God pursued Pharaoh but after Pharaoh continued to reject, reject, reject 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 his heart turned to stone you know they say statistically 90% of people who accept Christ do it by the time they're a teenager that doesn't mean that God can't save people who are who are older God can but statistically speaking it becomes much more difficult because we get set in our ways We say no, no, no. And the more we say no, unfortunately, the easier it gets. So as we come to the close this morning, my prayer for us is going to be that we begin to really truly look in our own hearts. We allow the Holy Spirit to begin to press upon us that we spend some time and if the Holy Spirit's really calling you, the Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart saying, this is a decision you've got to make. You never made it. My prayer is today you make that decision. I do my best every Sunday when we do this to keep every head bowed, every eye closed, for no one to look around. It's a very private decision that you will make between you and God and I'll, I'll help guide, through you, guide you through some of that and, and we don't ever draw spotlights on people because we don't want people to be afraid of that but folks even if we did going back to that one 
verse in John 43. If we're more scared of what people will think, if we're not willing to accept Christ as our Savior because of what a group of 30 or so people are going to think, What we're telling God is, listen, I'd rather spend eternity in hell and damnation than raise my hand right now. I know this isn't one of those peppy talks (laughs) like we get to come in here and rev everybody up. But it's a real talk. As your pastor, and I, I don't take any of this lightly, I can't control any decision that you make. But one day I know I stand before God and I will give an account for how I led. I will give an account as a pastor. And I promise you, I don't take that lightly. I shudder at the thought of one day when my time on earth is done, standing before God, I shudder at the thought of thanking those who do not accept Christ under my leadership. So I will tell you this, every Sunday you come, my heartbeat is they're going to drag us to the cross every Sunday because I want to be able to look Christ eye to eye with all sincerity say, God, I tried as best I could. I tried to be as faithful as I could. I want to do whatever I can to ensure that we are all up there together shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna together. I want a big old section at the feet of Jesus to be Redemption Hill. That's my heart. So I'm going to pray. We're going to go into our invitation time. I want you to do some business with God. That might be Today's the day that you're going to accept Christ. That might be where you just say, listen, I've already accepted Christ, but the reality is I'm not living for Christ. I'm too scared of what everyone else is thinking. And so today I'm going to start living once again for Christ. I don't know what it is, but I want you guys to use this time of invitation to let the Holy Spirit work in you. And as you feel the Holy Spirit prodding you, I'm going to ask you and beg you to respond to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.